Okay, today we are starting our new sermon series in the book of Job. It reads Job. I know when you look at it, that says Job, but it's Job. That's how we're saying it. Um, So, shall we start with our Bible reading, which is um, Job 1. This is on the um, church Bibles. This will be page 509. So, page 509. We're going to... We're going to start with um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and, but I would encourage you to um, keep your Bibles with you because we'll be looking at um, further verses um, following on from that later on in the, in the message. Okay, let me, let me read this then. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their home on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we start. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And as we think about this passage of scripture now, we pray that you would help us. Holy Spirit, would you come now and speak to us? Allow us to have hearts and minds open and ready to receive all that you would want to say. Lord, I pray that you would anoint these words with such healing and restorative power that it just that oil drips forward into our lives touches the dry places and brings that healing and restoration lord we long to meet with you in these pages so we pray come and have your way lord in jesus name we pray amen amen okay it's exciting isn't it I know. Some of you will be thinking, she does know the children have already gone out, doesn't she? This 
is Ted. Ted was given to a young child as a gift, but the child wanted something a bit more exciting. I'm not criticizing the child, the child was simply disappointed, but the child didn't really want the bear, didn't care about the bear, and so the bear got kicked around and beaten up. And so his face is a bit squishy, the stuffing's falling out of his feet, and he's had to have his head sewn back on. Some of us might have a sense of what it feels like to have been kicked around and had the stuffing knocked out of us by the circumstances of life. Before we dive into this passage today, I'd like us just to cover a few things that hopefully then will help us to understand what we're thinking about today. When suffering happens, it isn't because God didn't care about us or didn't want us or was disappointed in us. It's not about that. God isn't rubbing his hands together in glee at the thought of Job's suffering. He's allowing it for a reason. So we have to recognize the difference between God's perfect will and God's permissive will, what God allows to happen. See if you can recognize which film uh, starts with these words. Those of you who know me, this might be a bit of a giveaway. The Marleys were dead to begin with. What film is that? The Marleys were dead to begin with. Yeah, Muppets Christmas Carol, absolutely, well done. Sadly, there's no prize, but, but good work. Muppets Christmas Carol, arguably the best film ever made. Arguably. Okay, Charles Dickens, when he wrote A Christmas Carol, he really wanted the reader to know Marley was dead. If you don't understand that Marley is dead to begin with, then nothing else that follows will seem wondrous. Marley was dead to begin with. Job, God describes Job as blameless and upright. It's as though our story begins with this sense of Job was good from the get-go. If we don't understand that, then we'll miss the point. There is nothing here to suggest that Job brought this suffering upon himself. Bad things happen to good people. Job is part of the wisdom or poetic literature within the Bible, and it's bookended with two chapters at the beginning and two chapters at the end where most of the action happens. And the rest of the book is beautiful, rich, poetic conversation, either between uh, between Job and his friends or between Job and God. So that's, that's what we're looking at today. Now, as we begin this series we might be looking for nice, neat, straightforward answers to suffering. Instead, at times we'll be confronted with suffering which seems to make very little sense. But can I encourage us to sit with it, to stay with that confusion or discomfort if that's what we're feeling? 
with the opportunity to travel with Job through these pages, to observe, to learn, to grow. This isn't going to be all stock answers and Christian platitudes. It's much more complicated than that. God is much bigger than that. God is big enough to hold us secure even when we are confused about what's going on. So, although Job may not be a walk in the park, there's some really good stuff awaiting us in the weeks ahead. Today, though, our task isn't going to be about trying to understand why suffering happens. Today, we're going to think about this question. How do we respond to suffering? How do we respond to suffering? And the three points we're going to hit are worship for an outcome, worship as an outpouring, and worship as an outlook. So outcome, outpouring, outlook. Let's start with outcome then. Does Job fear God for nothing? Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. That's what the accuser says. We know, don't we, that our motivation when we're worshipping God is mixed at best. At the start of our services, we even pray a prayer in recognition of that, don't we? We recognise that God knows the skewed motives of our hearts and we pray that he would cleanse us um, and help us so that we are better able to love and worship him as he deserves. Does Job fear God for nothing? The suggestion is that Job only fears God because God has blessed him and Job is worried that he's got to keep God sweet, otherwise God might take away all of those blessings. So the accuser says, take those blessings away and Job will surely curse you to your face. Later in chapter two, um, the accuser suggests that Job's worship is all about survival, that Job is only worshipping God so that he can remain alive. So the accuser's suggestion is Job is worshipping God for an outcome. If I do this for God, God will do this for me. I remember hearing um, a testimony, this was years and years ago on Christian radio, about a veteran of the Vietnam War. And um, during an explosion, he'd been horribly um, burnt, his face and his body. And he had to go through loads and loads of treatment. He's Christian. And as he was going through his treatment, he was praying that God would heal him because he looked radically different from the way that he'd looked before. And one day he went into the chapel to pray and he got so desperate as he was praying that God would heal him, so desperate that he ended up saying, God, if you don't heal me, I'll, I'll. And he felt God say, you're what? What will Job do when God doesn't keep everything just so? Will Job curse God to his face? Times of suffering are often very telling for us, aren't they? Our response, it seems, does matter. Are we only worshipping God for an outcome? Are we looking to receive rather than to relate? 
Sometimes when suffering happens, we can be tempted to accuse God of wrongdoing, of making mistakes or having an imperfect heart towards us. God, if you really loved me, you'd make this suffering stop. When suffering arrives, uh, when we experience loss, it's as though we want to call up the customer services department in heaven. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. How do I make a complaint? (laughs) Worship as an outpouring. Let's head back to that chapel with that desperate veteran praying to God. If you don't heal me, I'll... You'll what? The soldier replies through his tears. I'll just keep on worshipping you. Job um, chapter 1 verses 13 to 19 is an account of the massive loss that Job experiences. Oxen, donkeys, sheep, camel, servants, and then his seven sons and his three daughters, one after another. How does Job respond to that loss? We want to have a look at the passage. We're reading from verse 20 here. And it says, At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job is saying, I didn't bring anything into the world. I'm not going to be able to take anything out of the world. And so everything I've had is temporal. It can't be relied upon in that way. Anything I had was not of my own provision. It was God who gave me those things. So even though God has then removed those blessings from my life, he remains worthy. He remains worthy of my praise. And so praise is my response to suffering. So my circumstances may have changed, but God has not. And because of that, I will pour myself out in praise, in worship, in prayer. I will not criticize God, I will connect with God. Later, he's afflicted with these painful sores, so now he doesn't even have his health. And to add insult to injury, his wife tells him to curse God and die. To which he replies, shall we accept good from God and not trouble. Horatio Spafford was a man who experienced great suffering. His four-year-old son died. He lost his wealth in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. And he planned to move with his family to England. And he sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead. And the boat that they were sailing in collided with another ship and sank. And his wife sent a telegram which read, saved 
alone. He travelled to be with his wife and the captain of the ship that he was sailing on informed him when they'd reached the place near where his daughters had died. And he later wrote these words that will be familiar to many of us now. When peace like a river attendeth my way, (laughs) when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. What an amazing response to suffering, to praise God, to trust, to find reassurance in God's love and goodness, even amidst heartbreaking loss. I would like to offer a word of warning here though. We don't want to be super spiritual in our suffering and claim that we're praising God when really we're floundering. That's not maturity. We don't need to hide behind a super spiritual mask. We're really thinking about our response before God and not about our response before other Christians. We don't need to worry about trying to impress one another. Hopefully with the help, support, encouragement and prayers of our brothers and sisters, we can move to a place in our suffering where we are able to bow ourselves before God, to recognise that he created us, he's the one that gives us breath, that everything good we have in life comes from him. So we can't take credit for it ourselves. And we don't make demands of God as though he owes us anything. We see him as love, as good, as sovereign. We surrender the illusion that we can dictate what our life looks like. And instead, we sink into the love and care of God, even in those most painful moments. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And so lastly, worship as an outlook. I recently read um, an account of a woman who as a child had been in a concentration camp. And this is what she says. I've had some fantastic mountaintop experiences but it's in the valley that you really meet God, isn't it? And you know, when I look at my own life, at the times that have been most painful and difficult, the times that I've been most desperate that God would bring about change, those are the times that I've been able to draw close to Jesus. I have had the wonderful opportunity to know the sweetness of his presence the tenderness of his compassion, even in moments of heartbreak and distress. I would not know God as I do now, but for the fact that God, in his goodness, in his goodness has allowed suffering into my life. So I look back and I see his hand in all of that and I am grateful. But I'm not suggesting that we should all go about looking for suffering or reveling in it. 
There are certainly experiences in my life where I think, God, I don't know what you're doing. What's going on here? But because he's been faithful before, I can trust that even if the difficulties remain difficult for the rest of my life, God is still love, still good, still sovereign, and therefore still worthy of my praise. God is powerful and compassionate, and there are times that he brings about that change that we so long for. Sometimes he does bring about resolution to difficulties and healing for illness. And it's right and good for us to bring our pain before God and to ask him to bring about that change. And sometimes he will bring that change to pass. And sometimes our task is to trust that he remains good even if our circumstances remain hard. At those times, we can take comfort in the knowledge that there will be an ultimate end to suffering, the ultimate resolution to difficulties, the ultimate healing. And at that point, when we reach heaven, do we really think when we see God, we'll be saying, ah, I've got a bone to pick with you. I suspect when we behold Jesus, we'll just want to bow before him in awe-filled worship. Job was good from the get-go. And not just in spite of that, but because of that, God draws Satan's attention to Job. Have you considered my servant Job? And throughout history, and to this day, people are making decisions for Christ which will cause life to become much more difficult, even to the point of costing them their life. And knowing the risk that they are taking, they still choose Jesus because he is worth it. He's worth it. I wonder if you ever catch yourself bargaining with God. Lord, if you do this for me, then I'll love and follow you. But when we contrast that with the experience of the persecuted church, we begin to see that our outlook is flawed. Our vision is poor. We're not seeing things clearly. Imagine knowing that to follow Christ might cost you your life and still choosing him. In many countries, that's still the case and people still choose to follow him because they understand the worth of knowing Christ. Their outlook is clear. Our temptation can often be to suggest that God has done wrong by us, that God, that God has knocked us about and kicked the stuffing out of us. And it's quite normal then for us to focus our attention on our suffering, on our wounds, on how we have changed because of our suffering, how life has deteriorated. I suspect that one of the ways we can avoid worship for an outcome and move to worship as an outpouring 
is if we change our outlook. What if, rather than accusing God of wrongdoing or cursing God to his face, we look instead to the face of the suffering servant, Jesus? What do we see there? The one who set his face towards Jerusalem, towards his suffering and death. The face that sweat drops of blood as he prayed desperately that that suffering might pass him by. The face that held that crown of thorns. The face of one who surrendered to being knocked about, who willingly allowed himself to experience that brutality. A face which understands suffering because he's experienced it himself firsthand for us. A face which looks upon us with warmth, kindness, compassion. What if we looked at that face? What's our response? As we change our outlook and gaze upon the face of the suffering servant, may we find the hardness and weariness of our hearts melting with fresh appreciation of all that we have in knowing Christ. Drawing on Hebrews 12, may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. May we consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Let's pray. Loving, compassionate Father God, we thank you for your heart towards us, your heart of love and kindness. And Lord, we recognize that it's hard for us to make sense of suffering, but we pray that you would help us to respond in a way which is helpful. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we have worshipped you for an outcome. And help us, Lord, to live our lives worshipping you as an outpouring. Clarify our outlook. May our vision be clear. Help us to gaze upon your beauty, Lord God, to behold your glory, to bask in your majesty. Lord, transform us, stir in us a hunger for you, Lord God, that we might pursue you regardless of our circumstances. Have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.